The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 1. Often at this time of the year, uh, we will hear sermons out of one of the birth narratives, and I feel like in recent years at least at this church, Luke chapter 2 has gotten all the love. So we are going to send our attention now to one of the other representations of the birth of Christ that we read about in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. To me, it really hasn't felt much like Christmas so far this year. I know Gene said it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Well, not really, for me at least. It may be due to the lack of um, time that we've had this year, considering Thanksgiving was as late as it possibly can be on the calendar, shortening the season. Or maybe it's because of the minimal snow and ice, which I'm very thankful for. Now, don't think I'm complaining. I'm, I'm actually, in many ways, quite thankful. But also, I'm just making the observation, it doesn't really feel much like Christmas. Maybe it's because we've been renovating our house and we've had no access to shared family spaces for the last several months, keeping the kid or several weeks, keeping the kids upstairs in their bedrooms and really having very minimal access to our kitchen, meaning no homemade Christmas cookies or Ashley's homemade amazing Christmas candies that she makes every year. Um, we had our decorations up for like four days and then we started renovation and Ashley had to put them all back in boxes and put them in the garage. So, uh, so much so that when I asked Petra, what does she want for Christmas this year? She said, I want our house back. <laughs> so <laughs> for most of us, Christmas has been largely hijacked by various forms of traditions. And we can get fatigued by all of that. And these traditions are not necessarily bad. In fact, in many ways, these traditions are good. Giving gifts is not a bad tradition. It's a great thing to be thoughtful and considerate about how to love someone and give of yourself to them. It's not a bad thing for us to spend extensive amount of time with family. In fact, that's a great thing. That's one of the best things about this time of year, that we see family so much more. But we can get overwhelmed and overburdened with these good things, so much so that we miss the main thing. Andy Williams famously sings that song in which he says, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And it's the happiest season of all, right? But if you pay attention to his list of reasons you're going to quickly find that those are all superficial things and they're things that could also be quickly lost. I think that's why this season is actually very difficult for some people. Where there once was the most wonderful time of the year, now their table is empty and the chairs around their table are empty and their heart is likewise empty. It's the moment when they realize, I don't really need to purchase a gift for that person anymore because they're no longer here. Or I'm never going to hear that laughter again around the Christmas tree. So whether you're discouraged or you're encouraged this season, whether this is Christmas and you're filled with that Christmas spirit that you see on the Hallmark Channel, or this is Christmas and you're devastated by the fact that circumstances in your life have taken a sharp turn for the worse, I want to point you to the real reason for joy. 
the real reason the angels sang. The armies of heaven stepped out of their military ranks to sing about the glorious king who arrived. And today I want you to see that that is reason for joy that is not constrained to some week or month or day on the calendar. It is not changed chained to a stage of life or to your circumstances. Today we consider Christ the Lord at his birth. So let's pray and let's dig in. Father, I pray that we would come and adore him today, that you would help us today, that we would gather around the manger and gather around the cross as we see the king, the one who was enthroned on heaven and then came here to be enthroned in that little lowly stall and to live a life of humility, to take the road of suffering to the point of death on the cross. God, I pray that we would see him in his resurrection and exaltation, and even as we began singing about today, his return. Lord, I pray that we would see that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that implies that every single step of our lives is to be taken under the reign and rule and authority of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today as we consider the words of Matthew chapter 1 and 2, that we would not do so alone or in our own strength or with the reason that we have that has been fallen since the garden, but I pray that we would do so in the power of the Holy Spirit as you work in us mightily. We thank you, Lord, for you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to consider just a few verses from the book of Matthew, but we're going to kind of move through chapter 1 very quickly. And as we do that, I want to help you see the big thematic presentation that the author of this book was making. The entire book of Matthew is geared toward the idea that the kingdom of God is here. And most significantly, that the king of that kingdom rules over all. So just to give a comparison... The, the main books of the Old Testament that speak about kings and kingdoms are, of course, the books of First and Second Kings and its sister books, First and Second Chronicles. And as you read through those books, you read about the chronicles of the kings and the stories of the kingdom. But if you look to the book of Matthew, Matthew actually uses the word kingdom more than all four of those massive books combined. The whole Bible speaks to the reality of God as our king. One of my former professors, uh, Tom Schreiner, actually views the concept of Jesus as king to be the central picture that is portrayed throughout all of the Bible. And he wrote a 700-page defense of this argument. And in the very beginning of that book, he writes, the drama of God as king and human beings as his, as his subjects is worked out in history and in a certain place. The story of all scripture is not only the relationship between God and human beings, it also relates to the universe. What is the destiny of the world that God has made? The scriptures promise that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation where the glory of God will illumine the cosmos. So the kingdom of God has a threefold dimension, focusing on God as its king, human being as the subjects of that king, and the universe as the place over which the king has kingship. That's the end of the quote. Great quote, Tom Schreiner. Read the book, fantastic. But no book of the Bible highlights the fact that Jesus is king more than the book of Matthew. It focuses centrally on this figure who has magisterial authority over all of the universe. 
Matthew is absolutely consistent and candid about the fact that Jesus is no mere shepherd. He is no mere man. He is no mere prophet. He is not just a priest. He is truly the king. And when ancient historians write about a king, or really anybody for that matter, there are two main things that they put emphasis on in their introduction of dealing with that individual. They focus on that man's lineage or that man's lands. This is a very significant thing. The pattern is true of every single biographical introduction to rulers of the ancient world. All that matters is parenting and property. It is about bloodlines and borders. In short, the questions that you must answer before telling the story of a person is, who is your daddy and what do you own? And this is the whole point of chapter one in the book of Matthew. Matthew goes to the extensive lengths of showing that the biological line of Jesus goes all the way back to David and then presses further all the way back to Abraham. So if you have your finger there in Matthew chapter one, you will see that he goes through that genealogy. There's an intentional act of doing this. He is from the kingly line. He is therefore able to fulfill the promises as the son of David. But directly following this genealogy, you will see this bizarre and stunningly blunt explanation of Jesus' birth. It says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, everything in that sentence is a normal sentence that you would understand and would make absolute sense to anybody without question until you get to the final four words. This child is unlike any other that has ever been born. This child is from the Holy Spirit. This is the extent of Matthew's explanation. There's no more description. There's no more functional explanation of how in the world did this possibly happen? It's one of the most mind-boggling events in all of history. And The eternal God was stepping into time. The second person of the Trinity, the one who has always existed and since the beginning of creation has been worshipped by angels, he is a spirit now stepping into the flesh. He is adding a material nature to himself. Many strangers wouldn't even get off their couch to help you if your car broke down outside of your house, uh, outside of their house. If, if you broke down and it's freezing and it's snowy and it's terrible, they're going to look out from the warmth and say, they can call AAA. But Jesus, he left heaven for us. We were not strangers to Jesus. He knew us even more intimately than we know ourselves. He created us. He knew us before we were born. And not only did he know us, he was abundantly aware of our rebellion and our rejection of his rule over us. But instead of ignoring us or destroying us, he ran faster toward us than we could run away from him. The lyrics of the song, Who Could Have Dreamed, reminds us of just how astonishing this condescension truly was. Hear the words, wondrous gift of heaven. The father sends his son planned from time eternal, moved by holy love. He will carry our curse and death he will reverse so that we can be daughters and sons. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? The giver of life is born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. After God explained Mary's conception to Joseph in a dream, we get the the further explanation from Matthew 
in verses 22 and 23, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So at the very outset, Matthew is shouting as loudly as his pen can say, Jesus is king by right of his divine origins. He is king because who is his father? God is his father. Matthew is writing this book directed to a Jewish audience, which is why the book contains more Old Testament references than any other gospel account. And when Matthew cites this passage from Isaiah 7, he is announcing the king of kings has arrived. God with us. Jesus did not become king the way that most people do. His coronation as king did not occur by nature of succession. He did not become king by conquering a rival. He did not become king based on his list of accomplishments or talents or by democratic vote. No, he was born the king of Israel. God was his father and God had sent him on a mission. And that is why the last sentence of this chapter simply says, and he called his name Jesus. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. And that's precisely what Jesus had come to do. He himself, Yahweh, had come to save his people from their sins. So now as we turn the page into chapter two, it's worth acknowledging that there is a one to two year gap here after chapter one ends. And as we consider this chapter, we're going to mainly focus in on three particular people. We're going to consider the Magi, and then the scribes, and then Herod. Look at the first two verses along with me. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So let's dispel some myths right up front, shall we? First of all, the wise men were not at the manger scene. So just as we heard earlier about all of these nativity sets, I hate to break it to you, most of them are quite inaccurate. Um, The wise men were not present until Jesus was probably about the size of my son Mordecai that I brought up earlier today. He was probably walking. He was probably talking. He was a fully toddlerized child. Secondly, I realized that We occasionally sing the song, We Three Kings, but these were not kings, and we have no scriptural reason to believe that there were just three of them. The first time anyone wrote about three of them or listed their names was actually about 600 years after the event. So we know that there were at least two because it's written in the plural, but we don't know how many actually showed up. It's possible there were just a couple. And it's possible that there were a large number. It's possible that they traveled in a small group together, or it's possible as being wise men who were probably quite wealthy, maybe they came as most wealthy people do when they travel with an entire caravan for the purpose of protection. We just don't know. And these men, they were not kings, but they were, quote, wise men. Literally, the word is magoi, or we would say magi, which is where we get our word, by the way, for magicians, 
These were people who were highly educated, and they were responsible for knowing and teaching and advising on everything from mathematics to civil engineering. They were responsible to be at the right hand of the king when he had questions so that they could answer about anything that he needed to know. They were most often called upon by rulers in order to give counsel in matters of war and diplomacy and architecture and history. They needed to have a wide swath of knowledge, and in particular, we know that these wise men focused on their study of the sky. We don't know for sure where these wise men came from other than the direction from the east. However, many scholars believe that these men were probably from Babylon, and I find that their arguments are pretty compelling. The first wise man that we actually read about in the Bible is this man we call Balaam. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, it describes him this way. It says, Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia. This, by the way, is the same region that would eventually come to be known as Babylon. So the first Babylonian wise man that we know of is Balaam. And this Balaam was actually a man who had some kind of supernatural powers. And if you remember your Old Testament well, you will know that in Numbers chapter 22, verse 24, the king of the Moabites hired Balaam to call down curses on the people of Israel. The most often remembered part of his story is how as he was traveling there, his donkey actually began to communicate to him verbally. But most importantly in the story is how God actually took this man and he turned his curses into blessings over the people. God would not permit him to speak curses out of his mouth over them. So he speaks three oracles, one at a time, and each time, after, each time God hijacks them and causes him to proclaim a blessing rather than a curse. And then the one who hired him, Balak, is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I told you to curse them and you're just blessing them. He said, I can't, I can't. And in fact, it says at the beginning of Numbers chapter 24 that the Holy Spirit came over his mouth and caused him to speak these words. After those three oracles were completed, God then filled his mouth with one final prophecy, one that pointed to the ultimate destruction of God's enemies, but also pointed to the rise of a coming king who would rule God's people. Here's the most relevant line of Balaam's final proclamation, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, I see him, but not now. And I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. There's a star coming and it's going to symbolize the rising of a king who is coming from the line of Jacob. Here's the first Babylonian wise man who stands and says, there's a coming king and he's symbolized by a star. Much later, the people of Israel would be exiled to Babylon, and one of the Jews, Daniel by name, would not only become a magi, but he would also save all of the other magi from certain death. If you will remember, one night Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in the morning when he woke up, he was terrified, but he could not remember the details of his dream, so he brought together all of the wise men and magicians in his kingdom, and he gathered them around, and he said, tell me the meaning of my dream, and I will let you live. And said, okay, well, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. But then he said, I, I, I don't know what it means. And if you can't tell me what it means, then you're not really able to tell me the meaning. So if you can't tell me what it was and what it means, then I'll have you all torn limb from limb and your house is destroyed. It's <laughs> a really gracious king, right? And all of them are then sentenced to death. So one of the men began, the captain of the guard begins collecting them. He begins gathering all the wise men together and he comes and knocks on Daniel's door and he says, what are you, 
what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm, we're going to kill you all in the morning, so I'm just coming to pick you up. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 what, what's making the king so mad? And over the course of Daniel chapter 2, you find out that as Daniel has this conversation with, with that man, and then he goes and prays, and then he goes to the king, God gives Daniel the wisdom and knowledge to know the dream and its interpretation, and he shares it to the king. And as the king is hearing it, he's remembering, that's exactly right, that is what I dreamed. And in that course of that dream and its interpretation, uh, Daniel saved all of those wise men who would otherwise have been destroyed. I think, most likely, this made Daniel very important in the eyes of those well-trained intellectual types in Babylon. And Daniel became a writer, and he wrote down many prophecies, and I think that those prophecies would have been highly received by the intelligentsia, which would have been like all of the PhDs in their country combined. This man's writings were probably well studied and listened to because these men's lives were saved by Daniel. God used Daniel to save all of them from the point of death, and therefore, I think, probably, they kept his writings for a long time. Daniel wrote many prophecies. If you read Daniel chapter 7 through 12, you'll see many of them, and they're some of the more challenging parts of the Old Testament to fully understand. But over the course of 70 years in his ministry there, Daniel prophesied about many times, many times about the coming Messiah who would have dominion over all. And scholars suggest that the legacy of Daniel's writings had probably continued on into the time of Christ and had influence over stargazers and these men's education. How did they know about the coming king? Probably because they had read Daniel. Of all the Eastern cultures during the time of Christ, the Babylonians were the most committed to astronomy and astrology. So it is likely that these wise men were probably from Babylon. So big deal, right? Why am I belaboring this point? The reason being Babylon is the enemy of Israel. If you read the Bible, if you read anything from the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, where you have the Tower of Babel, all the way through Revelation, Babylon represents sin and rebellion and evil. It is where you go to go away from the face of the Lord. It is where you go to go into exile when God is displeased with you. It is always representative of the worst of the worst. Yet it seems to be that these wise men come from the farthest place that you could imagine. It is not those who are knowledgeable about the word of God that come to him first. It is those who are from a foreign land who arrive to worship him in this book. How fitting is it that in this gospel account, Matthew's gospel, the first people to worship Jesus that we see are actually foreigners. They are actually Gentiles. How fitting is it that we, as we are studying through the book of Acts, are learning about how the Gentiles were planning, by God was planning the whole time to bring them into his kingdom. And now, as we have been just learning in Acts chapter 10 about the first Gentiles to come in after the establishment of the church, we are learning that this amazing plan of God has been working itself out from the beginning. God had literally been leading these men by some kind of a mysterious and supernatural light to this place so that they might find the newborn king. <clears throat> this was foretold by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
when it comes to the star, we're not going to explore its nature deeply this morning. All I will say right now for this is that I, I find it quite interesting and significant that the searching of the wise men of the sky was enough to permit them enough information to get in the right direction, but it could not actually lead them to the Christ child. Look at verses three and four. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I find this to be fitting as a metaphor for the reality of how God always works out things in the world. These wise men started by searching for the Savior, by watching the star, by looking literally to the sky, but their pursuit was not able to be completed until they were able to actually hear the scriptures. Psalm 19 begins by speaking about natural revelation. You'll know the opening line. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you read the first six verses of that Psalm, you will see that over and over and over, the writer is explaining to us how creation itself paints a picture that gives undeniable evidence of God's existence and God's power. However, then the author seemingly at random translates his next eight verses into speaking about this completely different seeming topic of God's word. How do we go from the world to the word? Well, the world shows us about God, but it does not give us enough information about God to know what we need to do in order to be in right relationship with him. So he begins by speaking about the world, and then he shows us about divine revelation through the word of God. Andreas Kostenberger explains this very well in his book, The First Days of Jesus, when he says, the highest learning of humankind through general revelation and nature, or the star, is not enough. Humanity needs special revelation from God through his word in order to find truth. That revelation came through the chief priests and the scribes. Another way to put this would be to say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. These men had enough information to figure something out about the Savior. But if you really want to know who Jesus is, you need to know the word. We're going to step away for a minute from the wise men, and then we'll come back to them in a little bit. For now, I want you to consider the scribes for a moment. These were the most theologically educated men in Israel. These chief priests and the scribes knew the Bible better than anyone. In fact, for the chief priests, it was their job to adjudicate like judges over the law. And for the scribes, it was literally their job to act like lawyers who they would regularly write and, and make copies of the scripture. And then when there was any question about what does it actually say, people would come to them to make a determining factor on that question. These were the most educated men in Israel, and it was their job to know the Bible better than anyone. And they certainly knew their Bibles well. As soon as Herod called them together and inquired of them about the birthplace of the coming king, they all knew exactly where this was going to happen. It's Bethlehem. This is the place that will be the landing zone for the Messiah. Look at verse 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, do you see this? They didn't even have to look it up. If it were you or me, would we know the Bible that well? They knew it by heart and could quote it 
immediately without having to go to the archives, without pulling out a scroll. Remember, there were no chapters and verses. They just knew it. Where is this going to happen? And then they quote this, this seemingly obscure Old Testament passage. This is incredible. Yet when the wise men leave to search for Jesus in that little town, only five miles away, not one of them leaves with them. Not one of these educated chief priests or scribes gets off their seat and goes. They seem to know everything, but believe nothing. And here we see the very beginnings of a divide that will remain throughout the book of Matthew, that the religious rulers will eventually turn from this ambivalence of, "Ah, big deal, okay, so what? Until they turn to outright vitriol and eventually succeed in the very act that Herod failed, the murder of the Messiah. Please understand, it's not enough to know the truth. There are many people who know the Bible well. There are many people who claim to even believe it, but will find themselves in hell because they have failed to bow their knee to King Jesus. Christianity means acknowledging that Jesus is the King and that he rules over your life. The Christian life looks like dying daily as you pick up your cross and follow him. So don't be fooled into thinking that your works or your knowledge or your ability to debate theological points of view are an indication of your salvation. These chief priests and scribes, they were masters of those things. Jesus reserved his harshest rebukes for this kind of person. So if you're professing Christian, I urge you to be the exact opposite of these scribes. Run to Jesus in every way possible. Worship him daily. Delight in spending time with him in prayer. Saturate your mind with his word. Make it a habit to surround yourself with his people. In doing so, bow your heart low before him in worship. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. But what about Herod? So far, I've somewhat ignored him in this passage, but let's back up and get a sense of who this man was. Herod was a brilliant architect who dedicated his reign to building some of the most incredible projects throughout all of Israel. In fact, if you just want to know a lot about history, you can study this man and there's all sorts of evidence that this man was one of the most important figures in terms of building up the nation's monuments throughout the land. Chief among his efforts was the incredible project to rebuild the temple that had fallen into disrepair. But consider also this this man had no real power. This man was a client king who ruled under the authority of Caesar Augustus. He was a ruthless and violent man. For example, he had 10 wives, and of those 10 wives, he had many children, and these children were often in competition with one another and were battling for supremacy over one another, and the wives likewise were trying to make sure that their children were the ones who would would inherit the kingdom after them, and Almost all of these children at one point or another were suspected of plotting his death. And for this reason, he actually had several of his sons killed and even one of his wives put to death. And he actually made six different wills. And every day he would speak to his advisors and tell them based upon his own feeling uh, which one of these wills was to be put into effect if he should die. And he would base that upon who he felt among his children were least likely to betray him that afternoon. This man was a very, very fearful man. He was afraid of losing his power. And just to put this into perspective, just to see what kind of king he was, consider this. When King Herod realized that he was about to die, he was 
getting close to his death, he commanded his sister Salome and her husband, Alexis, to gather thousands of, quote, notable citizens of Israel, one from each family of the main cities, and to gather them into the huge hippodrome, which is where they would have chariot races. Then, at the moment that he died, he commanded his sister that all of these people would be slaughtered by the soldiers of his army. He wanted to do this so that he could ensure that the people of Israel would be mourning and not celebrating when they heard that he died. Thankfully, his sister and, her, and her brother-in-law did not carry out this command. They ignored his final wishes. But consider the kind of man who has such little regard for human life and who cares so deeply about his own rule and reign as king. Can you imagine Herod's response when he heard what the wise men were asking for? Where is this king of the Jews? This newborn baby who is king? I don't know if he was present. It doesn't make it clear if he's hearing this directly or if he's hearing this in a roundabout way from someone else. But if he was with them, he must have had a pretty good poker face because inside I know that he was angry and furious. And if he wasn't with them, I just imagine him clenching his teeth and maybe throwing something against the wall. He was furious that anybody but him would be considered the king of the Jews. I am the king of the Jews. The response that, of Herod that we see in this passage is the same response of every human heart that rejects Jesus. Earlier, we were hearing about this baby in the manger, right? Gene was speaking about how people are the most comfortable with him. Herod was not. Herod was quite uncomfortable with this idea because if that's the king, then I am not the king. Here's the deal. When it comes to Jesus Christ, that is the conundrum. If you are king, he is not. And the reality is that he is king and you are not. Every single person who hears of the name of Christ has to make a response. Will they bow the knee or will they stand in rebellion? Why do people hate Jesus? It's because he demands everything from them. They no longer have autonomy. It is because Jesus is king and they are no longer sitting on that throne of their life. Here on Long Island, just like everywhere else in the world, people are trying to build their own kingdoms. We want to rule our own lives. We want to make our own rules. We want to answer to no one. Herod even, Herod even pretended to be a Jesus worshiper for a time. Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Why am I preaching the gospel constantly from this pulpit? Why do I slam it every time we are here? Why do I treat every sermon as an opportunity to preach to unbelievers? Because it's easy to hide. Herod was good at it. He seems to be an actor of some sort. He says, I want to worship this kid. I want to go with you. I just can't go right now because I've got a lot of political things going on, but you tell me where he is and I will go and I will bow down and I will worship this newborn king of the Jews. No. He was outwardly declaring himself to be a Jesus worshiper, but inwardly he still worshiped himself. There is a strong possibility there are those in this room who are exactly like Herod, who declare, who will even sing the songs with us. But internally they know that they want to remain as the king of their own life. If that is you, there's only one thing to do. Do not live out your life like Herod. 
Instead, bow before the king, recognize that he is sovereign and you are not. The intention of Herod's heart was to keep his throne forever and never allow Jesus to reign. Perhaps that's you. You're putting on a show. Just bow the knee to Jesus. Submit to his authority. Recognize that he is the ruler of the world and the ruler of your life. To become a Christian is not as simple as just praying a prayer. It means literally submitting yourself to him, to recognizing that he is Lord. This word Lord means absolute master and commander. The Christian life means picking up your cross and following him daily. It means to walk like Jesus walked. So to know that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead and to place your faith in that is what will save you. But in doing so, there will be a radical transformation of your life. If you truly believe, then there will be radical change. How can you tell if you've done this? It's not by cataloging your works. Herod built a temple. He had a lot of works. He could say, God, look what I did for you. He seems to believe the Bible. When he has a question of theology, he goes to the people who know the Bible well. That didn't save him. It's not by taking stock of your profession. He had the right words. No, if you truly want to know Jesus Christ, see him as king. See him as the ruler and authority of all. That he is the magisterial ruler of your life who has all authority to declare what you do and what you do not do. And if you come to the point where you are willing to confess your sins at the cost of your own reputation and repent of them and follow after Jesus, you will be saved. As we read in verses 9 through 12, as we read these, notice that these wise men laid down their treasure, symbolizing that earthly goods do not compare to the value of knowing Christ and worshiping him. Here's what it says beginning in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they, had been, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. <clears throat> when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This event was also foretold, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 5 through 6, which says, Then you shall see a radiant light, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. J.C. Ryle famously said, wise men seek Jesus. But there's another who also sought Jesus. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Earlier I brought up my little boy, Mordecai. They were looking for boys just like him. We don't know how many they found, but every one that they found, they executed them. By the grace of God, the Lord had given Joseph a dream to lead his family out of Israel and into Egypt. But I want you to see that when Herod dropped the facade of Christ's worship, he responded with genocidal rage. 
he determined to kill every child, two years old and younger. This man who claimed to be the king of the Jews wielded his power with abusive and maniacal destruction of life. He was the kind of king who was only interested in himself, only guarding the limited power and land that he thought belonged to him. This is very unlike Jesus. Jesus is our shepherd king. He is the opposite of Herod. Our king gave up his throne in order to serve us. Our king did not kill children, but instead said, let them come unto me and do not hinder them. Our king did not take away from us, but instead gave us the greatest gift, the gift of heaven, Jesus himself. He gave us this gift which can never break, can never decrease in value, and we can never lose. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, we read that Jesus' name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me show you now how Matthew closes out his book in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is right as Jesus is ascending into heaven. The last words we read about Jesus speaking before he was with the Father. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Boundless authority. He is declaring, I am indeed the king, and this is my kingdom. All of creation is under my rule and my reign. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and consider the final words of Jesus. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's right. God with us. This is not just Jesus in a manger, God with us. This is Jesus now, God with us. That even though he is in heaven, he is also with us. If you are in Christ, then every day for you is Christmas because Jesus has been born and he was killed and he was raised and he ascended and he remains with us now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that if there is anyone here in the room who is like the scribes and the Pharisees here, the scribes and the chief priests who know your word, who have an awareness of the gospel, who have heard the good news of your grace, but yet they don't care. God, I pray that you would break their rebellion, that you would break their hard heart, and that you would cause them to hear the truth and believe it and be saved. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is like Herod, who is putting on a mask and pretending to have interest in Christ, but they truly have been running from you in their heart, God, I pray that you would chase them down, pursue them, arrest their heart, and bring them to yourself. And God, I pray for those in the room who are like the wise men, who have gone after your son, who have indeed bowed their hearts low and laid down their earthly treasures at his feet. God, I pray that they would be encouraged and strengthened and that you would renew them by your spirit and that they would be prepared to give an answer for the good news that is in them. And just as we read here at the end of Matthew, that they would make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.